Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1 uh, to verse 10. You can stay seated for this reading, but God's Word tells us this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way, Oh, sorry. Since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. How many of you have heard this before? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm coming to your house today. Yes, I'm coming to your house today. All right, so for some of you here who came this morning, read that text, I know one of the big questions in your mind was, is he going to sing or mention that song at all in this sermon? So I just wanted to get that out of the way so we can proceed. But for some of you, you might be, what is that weird little jingle? That's just simply a children's song that uh, is, is quite popular. And if you or in the church from a young age, you probably have heard that. And uh, it's quite catchy, because I haven't heard that song probably in 15 years until I read this, and then I, I googled uh, Veggie Tales, the, the Zacchaeus song, and I listened to it again. But I, I just remembered it. I hadn't missed a beat. But in that catchy little song, it is quite, does well in terms of simplifying what this passage is about. And that is Jesus meeting with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus meeting with Jesus. And if I were to distill this passage down into one kind of big truth that I want you to cling on to today, it it would be this. When you meet Jesus in humility, he will save you and he will change you. When you meet Jesus in humility, he will save you and he will change you. Now as you might ponder that song or you may have heard it for the first time, what is one detail that that song leaves out? Did any of you catch it? When we read the text, there's, there's something in, intriguing about Zacchaeus that the song doesn't mention. Did, you, did any of you see it? And you, you can give me feedback here. What did, it not, what did it leave out about Zacchaeus? Say it again. He's going to pay back the money. That, that's close to it. it. Go back a little bit. What's the implication there? He was wealthy. You go back a little more. Why was he wealthy? Zacchaeus was a tax collector, okay? Now, to guide our time to unpack this passage, what does this mean? What does it mean for us today? We're going to consider three um, big things. Number one, the short, stingy sinner. Number two, the God who became a guest. And then finally, the change that comes from a new heart. So firstly, the short, stingy sinner. Zacchaeus, the text tells us, verse 2, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. 
Now you stop right there. If that description of this man doesn't immediately cause you to be repulsed and angry at him, I want to try to insert you into the first century context. You see, in the first century with the Jewish people, they were underneath Roman rule. Right? They weren't just in the land of the free, the home of the brave. They were underneath the rule of the, the, you know, the brutal Roman Empire. And the Romans and the Jews, they weren't necessarily buddy-buddy. Far from it. Now you see, the Romans, they disrespected the Jewish way of life. They mocked the Scriptures. They didn't acknowledge the one true God that the Jews believed in. They were always looking over the Jews' shoulders, always kind of just seeing what they would do, making sure there was no hint of insubordination and if there was any whiff of it, right, there would be jail time, execution, or seizure of property. Right, so the Jews already looked at the Roman people above them very disfavorably, with a lot of animosity. Now, when the Roman government ruled over them, as is often the case throughout history, whoever is ruling typically takes advantage of those who are below. So what did they do? They set up a quite a thorough taxation system to, to just make money, right? We're, we're, we can just sit up here in our palaces, in our houses, and we can just make money just by the fact that they're existing, they live. Back in the day, as you know, right, tax season just ended, but back then, there was no e-filing allowed. So you actually had to have face-to-face interactions with the tax collector. So what the Roman government did was they set up tax collectors, tax booths, tax stations, all throughout the land of Israel that the Israelites, that the Jewish people would have to meet them face to face to hand over their money. But here's a little catch though. Right? The tax collectors were Jewish men. You might be wondering, what, where does that come from? Well, you see, the Romans were, were smart. They knew that if they, they were able to buy some of the Jewish people, there would be less resistance to resist them. And so the Jewish people, those who chose to become tax collectors, they would have had to have renounced their family. They would have had to have spit in their parents' faces, renounced their heritage, renounced their religion, renounced their way of life, so that they would serve the cruel, godless Roman leaders above them. And you might think, who would, on earth would do such a thing like that? Right? If you're in the community, if you have good relationship with your family, who would want to be a tax collector? It would be somebody who would be extremely greedy, it would have been just a low life, or it would have just been a criminal. So immediately, those who would have been tax collectors would have already had a disfavorable view amongst society as a whole. And now you see the text. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Now here's the, another little note. You may have heard this before, but tax collectors in the first century, um, it's not as though you know today we justify or maybe console ourselves with taxes by saying, uh, you know, our taxes today, they provide infrastructure, education, and law enforcement, right? These different public services. And, you know, in Charlottesville, if you live there, one of the, uh, there's just a, the best of all what taxes provide are the different modern art sculptures throughout the, the city. And, but in the first century, though, right, there, there was none of that. As one author said, the Jewish people were paying their oppressors to oppress them. Right? There's no recep- reciprocity here. And let's say, for example, this past week you made $100. All right? And let, let's just say the Roman government charged $1. You know, they, they taxed you $1 per 100 
The tax collector, Zacchaeus in this instance, the chief guy, the kingpin of this region around Jericho, he could have, when it was time for you to meet him face to face, he could say, all right, you know what, Chris? You owe me $17.50. Even though Rome only required $1, they could have pocketed that extra $16.50. And you can't argue with them. You cannot argue, you cannot debate, you cannot say, that's unfair, you can't do that. Again, a whiff of insubordination, execution, jail, or seizure of property. So you have to comply. But it gets even more insidious. Furthermore, if you just paid to Zacchaeus, and let's say another tax collector is walking by, they just happen to look at you, and they just are having a bad day, they could just say, you know what, Chris, you still owe me $30 today, even though you just paid it. You cannot refuse it. So with, with all of that background, how would you view a tax collector? Would you want to have a meal with them? Would you even want to just look them in the eye and smile at them? Would you want to talk to them at all? Absolutely not. Right, tax collectors in the first century and first, first century literature, they're named among murderers, among robbers. Right, they're, they're high on the list of people you stay away from, but more than that, people you hate people you despise. Because you see, in the Bible, we, we come across a lot of different sinners in the Gospels. Right? Whether it be uh, thieves, like the thief on the cross, or um, you know, Jesus talks about how there's going to be prostitutes who enter the kingdom of God before the religious elite. Right? A lot of different sinners. But the thing about tax collectors that's slightly different is you can't just keep your distance from them. Right? A lot of people, and think about lepers, or a blind man, or somebody who is deaf. Those types of people... If you wanted to stay away from them, what? You just walk on the other side of the road. But a tax collector, you cannot escape their presence. You have to look at them in the eye, face to face, every so often. So there's a lot of just hatred for it. You can't just avoid them. There's hatred because you have to see them quite often. So Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And he was very wealthy. The text tells us that because he was a chief tax collector, this most likely meant that he was as I mentioned before, he's the kingpin around Jericho. But the text goes on, verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Now, the Scripture doesn't explicitly give us the background on this. I, I was just trying to think, what would call Zacchaeus to want to see this man? And I just, I entertained the thought, perhaps, how many of you have heard, you know, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, Right? So one of them is Matthew. And those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you know Matthew was a tax collector. So I like to think maybe Matthew worked for Zacchaeus. Maybe Zacchaeus was Matthew's boss. And maybe as Zacchaeus was at the tax booth collecting all the money, Jesus comes by, calls out to Matthew by name and says, hey, come and follow me. Matthew gets up, he leaves all of his money, he leaves his career, he leaves all of the status that he had with the high leaders to go follow this renegade Jewish preacher. And Zacchaeus probably thought, what on earth? Why would he go do that? Does he not care about what's right in front of him? There there must be something special or or valuable or intriguing or unique about this Jesus fellow. I've never met him, I've never seen him, but why would anybody leave this good post to go follow this guy who's stirring so much trouble in the region. And this is the time where this happened in uh, Jesus' life. This is towards the end. Scholars say that this is about 10 days before the crucifixion. 
So Jesus has had public ministry for three years, and when Jesus preaches a sermon, 5,000 plus people hear it. What do you think those 5,000 people do? They go and tell their friends, their family, their neighbors. So just the word has spread rapidly. A lot of people have heard about Jesus, and Zacchaeus is one of them. And he wants to see who Jesus was. He wants to get a glimpse of him with his own eyes. But you and I know this part right here. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. We don't know explicitly how short he was. Maybe he was Danny DeVito size, who's 4'10". Um, we don't know exactly. I, I did see one, one scholar say that in the first century, that statement would have meant that he was at least below five foot. And you just think about it, he would have been at least a head below everybody because he couldn't see over the crowd. So what does he do? Look at the text. Verse 4, He ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now this wasn't, you know, today, even today, you think about it, wouldn't it be odd to see a banker or a teller in their, their attire, their suit, in a tree just in the middle of the day? You just don't see grown men or grown adults, really. And of course, unless you're playing with kids, right? You, we get that today, but even more so in the first century, it was so much more absurd. You do not see a man of dignity, a man of status, climb a tree, much less run, because you see in the text, Zacchaeus ran ahead. And to run, um, you know, they wore tunics back in the day, and to run, you had to lift your tunic a bit, which would have exposed you know, the bottom part of your legs, which that was shameful. You don't do that, especially as a man in society. So Zacchaeus disgraced himself in several different ways because he wanted to get a glimpse of this man. He didn't care about what other people thought. He didn't care about how much social stigma there might be with how other people might view him. There's just one concern in his mind. I just want to see this man with my own eyes. I don't necessarily need to touch him. I don't even need to talk to him. I just want to look at him. But that's when we look at the second truth here, and that's the God who became a guest from verse 5 to 7. It tells us when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he, Zacchaeus, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is going to be the guest of a sinner. Now Everyone had bated breath here. All right, so Jesus is walking. The, the, the sycamore tree, it, it, I, I've read that it could have been at least 60 feet tall. So it was, it was a good little tree. So Jesus reaches that spot, perhaps is in the shade. It, the text says he looks up. Jesus looks up and looks at Zacchaeus in the eye. The eyes connect immediately. And then Jesus says, Zacchaeus. He calls him by name. Not just, hey, you up there. I can't see who you are. He doesn't just say, hey, you tax collector. He says, Zacchaeus. And then everybody around him, the disciples, the crowd who's following him, trying to press in on Jesus, they're all wondering, what is he going to say? I hope he, he, he gives him what he deserves. I hope he condemns him. I hope he just gives him the justice and the wrath that he deserves for betraying us. But he says, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. This is the first and only time Jesus invites himself over to somebody's home. And it's just clear Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus takes the initiative here. And what happens here, right? Jesus goes to his house, they share a meal together. 
that communicates so much. Back then and even today, you understand that to a degree. Right? Think about um, in, in, Charlotte, you know, in the city of Charlottesville, a homeless man, a homeless person you may have seen. To love them, on the most basic level, what do you do? You look them in the eye. That's just the most basic thing. Just look them and acknowledge their humanity, their existence, by looking them in the eye. I mean, how many of us, when we see them, we just kind of, you know, look the other, we pretend like we don't see them. To love somebody at the bare minimum, you look them in the eye. You go a little further than that. How do you love them well? Speak to them. Say hello. You love them a little better, you get to know their personal name. Not just acknowledge them that they are human, but what is their personal name? You love them a little better. One thing that I, I try to do with, with them whenever I encounter them is, hey, can I get you some food? Um, I'm personally not comfortable giving money, but I, I do offer, hey, can I get you a meal? There's a restaurant right around the corner. So, you know, that's a d- deeper way to love them. But perhaps the most clear, powerful, tangible way that you can love somebody like this is to invite them into your home, to cook a meal for them on your stovetop, and even to let them stay at your house, to use your shower, to stay in the guest bedroom. You, we get that to a degree. It's, it's a holistic way to love somebody. And as, I've, as one author says, you know, we, we as Christians, we talk about we want to demonstrate love, we are, we're supposed to be people of love, and that's in our mission statement, we want to show God's love. But one author said, hospitality is the flesh and blood on the bones of love. And Jesus here, when he initiates and says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Jesus is expressing to everybody, I'm going to have fellowship with this man. I'm going to have a meal with this man. And Zacchaeus came down at once, welcomed him gladly. And then verse 7, Jesus went to be the guest of a sinner. And that's the gospel wrapped up in just a few verses right there. As people have said before in Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees, they were uh, complaining because this happened before. Jesus had a meal with Levi, with Matthew, the other tax collector, and they were all murmuring, complaining. Matthew or Luke chapter 5, verse 30. The Pharisees asked Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Listen to what Jesus said here. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus sharing a meal with this man, it's as if he's declaring to Zacchaeus, declaring to the crowd, Zacchaeus, you are being forgiven of your evil career. Zacchaeus, you are being brought into God's family. Zacchaeus, You are being cured of your addiction to wealth. Zacchaeus, I'm going to transform you into a model of generosity. That is the gospel, front and center, explicitly clear. But then in verses 8 to 10, we see Zacchaeus' change that comes from the new heart. As Zacchaeus received love, grace, hospitality from the Lord, he repents. You see verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up, said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now you notice a few things pick apart. Zacchaeus didn't give all of his money away. Right, sometimes in the Bible when you read it, you might think, you know, Jesus calls me to sell everything. Because there is an instance, 
in chapter 18 where Jesus does say that. Right? If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, sell all that you have and come follow me. That's not necessarily the case for every single person. It wasn't the case for Zacchaeus. He didn't sell everything, but he did give a lot of his money away, particularly to those whom he had wronged. And, you know, for you and I today, right, if Jesus is not the Lord over your finances, if he is not the master over your wallet, he is not the master over your life. If you claim, right, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I follow you, that means your money will be used for his glory, for his purposes. And I hope you understand my heart here. I'm not saying that you need to give money to Hillsborough Baptist Church or to the preschool, right? But you are called to be generous with your money. That is clear in Scripture. But then Jesus continues, verse 9 and verse 10. In response to Zacchaeus' repentance, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And a few things I, I just want to point out here. Sometimes in the Christian church, I think it's, it's easy for us to think about Jesus, in, or in the Bible, in terms of fire insurance, right? So Jesus came, he, he preached, he went to the cross, he rose from the dead, all so that we could go to heaven afterwards. It's all about what happens after we die. That is a massive part of the Christian narrative, but it's not just about the future. Christianity in Christ is about today. Because just as Jesus has saved you, just as Jesus has saved you from hell, he has saved you for heaven, so now he wants to change you. He wants to transform you. He wants to use you to spread love, to spread light in this world today. And that's clear with Zacchaeus. Right? Zacchaeus' attitude wasn't, you know what, Jesus, I know I'm going to heaven now, so I'm just going to sit back and enjoy all my money I have, or I'm going to go back to the tax booth so I can just make more money. No, Zacchaeus recognized, Lord, you have blessed me so much. You have saved me from the, the, the idol of greed and of wealth and how that just consumes my heart. It doesn't fill me with true love and happiness. You've saved me from all of that. How can I not share all that you've given me with others who are in need? As Jesus saves us, he also wants to change us. And Jesus says right there, the very end, verse 10, we see explicitly why Jesus came into the world. Some commentators say that Luke 19, verse 10, is the theme verse of the Gospel of Luke. This is what the entire Gospel of Luke is about. It is about Jesus stepping into the world, coming to seek and to save the lost. Coming to look for the lost, but not just coming to look, also coming to save, to rescue. Right? It's both and. Uh, I, I was... I've watched a movie before called 127 Hours. I don't know if you all have heard of that or familiar with that story. It's quite intriguing, quite gruesome at the same time. It's about a man who, his name was Aaron Ralston. He was in Utah, and he went out hiking in um, the Blue John Canyon, I believe it's called. And he didn't tell anybody where he was going, and he was walking along the rim. And uh, eventually he, he was crossing a bunch of different crevices and stuff, and he, he was on a rock and he caused it to, to slip and fall and he fell beneath the, the, under the canyon 
and the rock landed on his arm and pinned him in between a canyon about this wide, and his arm was just stuck there. Uh, just this arm. Everything else, he was, he was standing up, he was upright, but he was, he, the movie you know, depicts him, the trauma he experienced, and just wondering, how much food do I have? How am I going to survive? A- am I ever going to get out of here? And is it, can I move the rock? He tried to move it several times. He tried to chip with his little um, Swiss Army knife, tried to chip away the rock, and nothing worked. He tried to use a levee system to, to pull it up. Nothing worked. Uh, eventually, I mean, I'm not going to go into graphic details. He was able to get his arm. He was able to escape the rock. And to do so, there was a massive amount of blood that was pouring out everywhere. Right? He was able to climb out of the canyon. And I think I read, if I remember right, he, he had lost 25 pounds um, due to fluid lo- due to blood just pouring out of his arm. But he had a will to survive. And as he was walking along the trail, trying to find his way back to the car, he, he stumbled upon a family who was hiking. And uh, if, if they had found him one hour later, he would have been dead. And the family, right, they, they saw him. They bandaged him better as best as they could. They gave him water. They gave him food. And, uh, you know, called the authorities, reported, where, this is where we are. The helicopter came, rescued him, went off to the hospital. Right? He, he's still alive to this day. In, in that scenario, did that family come seeking this man? Did they come seeking Aaron? No. They, they were just out walking. They were, they were just enjoying that, that park. But they, they stumbled upon him and they were able to help rescue him. Right? And conversely, if Aaron, he, he didn't have children at the time, but if he had a five-year-old child, the five-year-old child treks out trying to find his dad, trying to look for him actively. Let's say he did find him. Would the child be able to save him? Five-year-old, no phone, nothing on him. No, no bandages, no food, no water. Would the child have been able to save his dad? No. You see, with Christ, it's both and. Christ came looking for us, looking for you personally, actively looking, but it's not as though as Jesus finds you, now he says, oh, you know, I can't do this. I need to go do something else. I, I'm not able. No. He also came because he can save you. He can rescue you. And it's not as though Jesus accidentally stumbled upon you and said, you know, now that I've found you in your brokenness, now that I've found you in your mess, I can do something for you. He came actively looking, actively saving you personally by name. And this is what I want to end with. This is what I want to close with. Right, fellow Christian, if you are a Christian today, I see two, two big kind of applications and reflections for you. Firstly, Rejoice in what Jesus has done for you. Right? This is a, the gospel in a nutshell. If Jesus can save Zacchaeus, this ostracized man in society, this, this low life of a sinner, again, in terms of how people viewed him, Jesus viewed him as a broken man who is in need of his grace. And Jesus shared that grace with him. That is how God treats every one of us. We are all broken. We are all messed up. We are all flawed. We are all sinners. Yet Jesus moves towards us all the same and comes closer to us. Rejoice in how Christ has treated you. But also, dear Christian, remember that as Jesus has saved you, he also wants to change you. As Jesus has indeed given you access to heaven, he now wants you to be an agent to bring heaven to earth through love 
through good deeds. And I ask you, do you have a heart for the lost as our Savior does? Are you looking for the lost? Are you seeking them? And for those family members you might know, are you praying for them? For those friends you might know, for those neighbors who don't follow Jesus and don't love Him, are you praying for them? Are you seeking their well-being? Are you opening up your home in hospitality, sharing the love of Christ? Or are you comfortable in the little bubble, isolating yourself from all the mess out there? And today, lastly, if you're not a Christian, or if you're simply exploring Christianity, trying to figure all this out, you may identify with Zacchaeus at the very beginning of the text. Regardless of Zacchaeus' past, and regardless of your past, today you might be intrigued by this Jesus fellow. And I just want you to drop for a moment all the, you know, the, the different hypocritical stuff you might think about the church or Christianity. Think about Jesus alone. Right? You might be intrigued about Jesus. You want to see him a little more. There's just something appealing, something mysterious. You don't quite figure him out fully, and you just want to get a little clearer glimpse of him. I'd say that's a great place to start. That is a wonderful place to start, but I will say that describes a lot of people. Because a lot of people have a, a little fascination with Jesus. But what happens? Well, you know, I, I can't see over the crowd. I, it's just too hard. And uh, I'm definitely not going to do anything that might look, make me look foolish in today's world. Uh, I'm not going to pursue the Bible or try to study it. Because, and if I actually follow it, people in the world, in the culture, at my job, they might start mocking me for following something that's so old. I'm just not going to do it. There's just too much pain and stigma and... I'll just keep my distance. I I can look from a distance. Whatever hesitancy you might have towards Jesus Christ himself, I hope in this text, in this passage, you are captivated a little bit by the radical love and beauty that Jesus shows to us broken people. Because it doesn't matter how grievous your past has been. That's one of the beautiful things about the Gospels. Jesus meeting broken people time and time again. He receives them. He welcomes them. But he only does that if you're humble. And if you, if you say, Jesus, yeah, I appreciate you, but I'm good. I don't really need you. Jesus says, okay. If you don't need me, I'm going to go to the least of these. To those who ask. To those who humble. To those who will receive me into their home. See, a lot of people want to see Jesus. A lot of people, even in the Gospels, they said, Jesus, come do a miracle for me. I want you to do something big for me. A lot of people do that. But will you have Jesus into your home? Will you open him? Will you invite him into the home of your heart in humility? That's the big question. And if you do, if you meet Jesus in humility, he will save you and he will change you. All for the glory of God. Let's pray, and then we'll close with the doxology. Jesus, we give you thanks today for the glorious truth in verse 10 that you came to seek and to save us, though we are lost, though we are confused, though we are hopeless, though we are empty inside. And we thank you for this beautiful 
demonstration of what that looked like, of what that meant. As you saved one of the most despicable people in society at that time. Lord, as you saved Zacchaeus, as you've saved the Apostle Paul, who dubbed himself the worst of sinners, how much hope, how much joy there is for us in the midst of all of our pain and our heartache and our mistakes. And as we live this life, will you please help us to be your hands and feet, that you'll help us to go and do likewise, to share and to minister to those who are ostracized, to those who are the least deserving in society. Father, for those who are here who may not know you personally, who have met you personally, would you please soften their heart, help them to be open and receptive to you. And Jesus, please reveal yourself to them. Please help them to hear your call. Please help them to know you personally. Holy Spirit, apart from you, we can do nothing. We need your presence. We need your power. Be with us today as we share a meal now. Bless our time. Please strengthen us so that we might serve you better. To all these things we commit to you in Jesus' name. Amen.